Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another edition of the Global Lithium Podcast. My guest today is Allison Dye, a director of Kempfis. Many of you may not know of Kempfis, but Kempfis was actually the first Chinese company to crack the Korean and Japanese markets for high-purity lithium products almost 20 years ago. Although they've stayed relatively small from a capacity perspective, they're a significant player in the industry due to their high quality. Allison and I cover a lot of ground on this podcast. Uh, we talk about their expansion plans. We talk about the future need for reprocessing capacity and how Kempfis may be able to help reprocessors from a quality perspective. We talk about their partnership model for building a business outside of China. We talk about the future of lithium chemical production in Western Australia, recycling, new processes, LFP versus high nickel, and when does a shortage of battery quality material cause price to spike. It's an interesting episode, and uh, I haven't known Allison that long, but as I've said on other podcasts, Kempfis made a big impression on me almost 20 years ago when they started taking business from the company I worked for at the time, FMC, now Livent, in Japan. It was quite a surprise. I had the pleasure of meeting Allison, her husband, and her father, who actually started Kempfis last year in Chile and then saw them uh, the following week in Argentina. One of the great moments, I think, of last year for me was watching the pride Mr. Die had when he was watching Allison talk about the business. And Mr. Dai is roughly my age, so uh, I also have daughters. So it a, was a very human moment and one that made a real impression on me. I think it's a, it's a classy family, and uh, I'm happy to be able to bring Allison back on the podcast. So without further ado, Allison Dai. This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is sponsored by Zalandez, a Brinefield services company providing real-time, actionable data. Zalandez recently saved a major lithium brine producer up to 50% in their drilling costs and increased brine well production rates by as much as 40%. Find out more at zalandez.com. Welcome to your second appearance on the Global Lithium Podcast. This is Allison Dai, the director of Chemfis, which is a Chinese, I uh, will say specialty lithium producer. Is that a fair way to uh, characterize uh, Chemfis? Thanks, Joe, for having me on. Uh, and yes, I, th- I think so. Uh, we're definitely a specialist lithium uh, processing company. I think you have one of the most interesting backgrounds of anybody we've ever had on the podcast. And there aren't many people that are born into the lithium world. And I think you would probably qualify for that, given it's a family business. So if you could give us a little bit of your backstory. Sure. Uh, so Kempfis is a, is a family business. Uh, my father started the company in 98. Um, and we've been involved in lithium processing ever since. So we kind of fell into lithium because in the mid 90s, my father was actually quite integral in introducing the greenbush spodumin uh, into China. Uh, and that's how we first knew about spodumin and, and lithium. I think around the same time, he was reading the patent uh, for lithium ion batteries. And he thought this is going to be the future because we had those huge mobile phones at, the, at that time. And he thought this could be miniaturized, all the electronics. So uh, we very quickly 
developed battery grade lithium carbonate and that was a 3.9 purity product and we were the first China-based uh, company to uh, to deliver this battery-grade lithium carbonate to the cathode producers in China. And then very soon after that, we developed high-purity lithium carbonate, which was a 4.9 and 4.95 purity uh, grade. The 4.9 grade is used in lithium hexafluorophosphate, or LIPF6, which is a key raw material for the electrolyte in batteries. And the 4.95 purity grade is used in uh, single crystal applications, so like lithium niobate and lithium tantalate crystals uh, for surface acoustic wave filters. And that basically improves the acoustics uh, in, in electronics. So those were kind of the high purity applications that we were very uh, early uh, and I guess pioneering in, in terms of from a Chinese producer perspective. And then about maybe a decade ago, we started working with the South Korean uh, cathode and battery producers where they were developing the NCA, I guess must be first generation NCA uh, cathode chemistries, and they needed the battery grade lithium hydroxide. So um, we started working with them from a research and development stage and developed battery grade hydroxide over the course of a couple of years and then became the first Chinese-based company to be qualified uh, by all the major South Korean cathode producers for battery-grade lithium hydroxide. So we were, I guess, again, very early to the, uh, the battery-grade hydroxide market as well. For listeners who did listen to your first episode, I, I won't belabor the fact that uh, mm -hmm. I was very well aware of your company because I had all the business, the raw material that went into high-purity carbonate wheat uh, when I worked for FMC, we supplied the hydroxide and I noticed the growth of the market and the decline of my business in that area. And it turned out that it was a company in Chengdu who was uh, taking all the business and at much lower prices than, than what the, the Japanese could uh, convert. So I think that goes all the way back 18 years almost. We've kind of set the stage and you're talking to me from London, even though your company's based in Chengdu and COVID's kind of changed the whole environment, at least temporarily. So what are your thoughts on the market short term and then long term? I mean, there's a COVID impact, but do you, you know, how do you view the three to five year growth story? Yeah, so this year has been a pretty tough year, I think, not just for us, but for many in the industry in general, uh, obviously with the impact of COVID. So that I think in, in China, we've seen you know, a very slow uh, activity in the second and third quarter. And the first quarter is generally a bit slower anyway, because we have you know, New Year and then Chinese New Year. And this year we had this extended Chinese New Year due to COVID. But I think we're starting to see the you know, very early green shoots of a potential recovery within China. We're seeing increased activity from customers planning for the fourth quarter and for 2021. And I think recently we saw the July China EV numbers increase. We've had some pretty positive performances from the uh, pure EV uh, producers like Neo and Tesla in the second quarter. And I think recently the Korean battery producers also reported quite positive results with a, with a sort of positive outlook for the rest of the year. So for us, I think the first half has been pretty bad. Third quarter is still pretty slow, but I think we're, we're cautiously optimistic uh, for the fourth quarter and, and uh, for next year. The visibility is still pretty short in terms of you know, how far ahead we can, we can see. It's much shorter than we would typically expect in, in previous years. And I think, especially for overseas, maybe it's, it's more uncertain at this stage because we're seeing a reinfection in COVID numbers, you know, increasing in Europe and, and also in the US. Whereas in China, I think because they kind of shut everything down very early on, 
the economy is basically fully reopened and things are relatively back to normal, I would say. So maybe also consumer sentiment is a bit is a bit weaker overseas because of this increased uncertainty. So I think for us, we probably expect China to recover first and then the overseas market maybe a little bit after that in terms of the, the short term. In the medium to long term, I think the fundamentals haven't really changed. So we're still very confident on um, the industry and where the demand will head in the next sort of three to five years. I think a lot of people have kind of commented on maybe COVID has delayed the demand curve by a year or 18 months. And I think we probably share that view as well. As I talk to people, I mean, I'm stuck in Charlotte, North Carolina, but uh, thanks to uh, the internet, I can pretty well talk to people around the world. And what I'm really hearing too, is that the, the industrial segment's been hit much harder. Battery segment's been hit, but the industrial segment's been hit very hard. And as a niche player, do you feel like you've gotten any protection from the decline? I and, mean, you know, your business is down, but do you think it's down less because you are a specialty player or do you not think that matters? So for most of our sort of specialty high purity um, products, they actually are still within the, the battery uh, application. So, you know, for the LIPF6, that's that's obviously impacted by um, by the by the general uh, low market uh, for battery materials. We also, you know, in terms of the, the high purity for electronics applications, um, a lot of that has to do with the 5G rollout. That's kind of where the next um, increase in demand should happen. But obviously, you know, COVID's had a delayed impact and with political tensions, with 5G. Uh, there's also been some delays there as well. So I think in terms of we have some other non-lithium related high purity products that, that have been quite steady. So that's been a bit of a buffer from that. But from an overall portfolio perspective, we're, we're, we are exposed a lot to the battery materials market. And the last time we talked, I, I think you said uh, your sales mix was about 50% domestic in China and 50% overseas. Is that holding kind of factor of COVID out? Do you expect that mix to continue into the mid and long term or will the rapid growth of China make your mix a little bit more domestic? Yeah, so it's it's kind of an interesting question in terms of um, overseas and, and domestic because I think historically, you know, if you were delivering to an overseas cathode producer or a battery producer, then that would you know, all be export. But now I think those lines are getting a bit more mixed where you have overseas OEMs or battery producers uh, procuring material that they want to be delivered within China and vice versa. So it, it's or you know domestic uh, people that want you to be delivering things overseas potentially in the future. So I think that um, that distinction is becoming a bit more blurred. Uh, but overall, we, we, we are still targeting a, a sort of a more even balance between overseas-based customers and, over and domestic-based customers. In uh, Santiago version of the podcast, you had talked about your capacity and your plan to expand. Did COVID have any impact on that or ha have you expanded to any extent since we last talked? Yeah, so... Um, Yes, COVID has had a, had a bit of an impact on how we are, um, I guess, executing our expansion. Um, in terms of the new plant expansion, that's been probably delayed by another year as, uh, as we're in a situation of oversupply. But what we're um, sort of addressing that in the, in the medium to short term is 
working with conversion, existing conversion facilities that are probably idle or underutilized. And if we have, you know, if we see any extra demand from, from our customers, then we can meet those from, from these uh, partnerships with the existing facilities. Partnership thing, we, we talked about that last time and you had mentioned that one of your significant areas of emphasis going forward would be to utilize partnerships to uh, extend and extend your business. And I think we talked about two things specifically, one being kind of the Qinghai, uh, the issues Qinghai had in, in producing battery grade and, and then some of the brine projects in South America. Where do those discussions you were having back then, where have they led? I see great opportunity for Chemfis because the industry continues to struggle to make a consistent battery quality product. And could you tell me, where where your uh, activities have taken you? Yeah, so I think that's they're definitely still uh, in the pipeline. So those those conversations um, are progressing and, and still being developed and on the downstream side. So you know we that's kind of where our historical expertise lies in producing um, whether it's battery grade carbonate or battery grade hydroxide. And we're definitely working with a number of projects to provide our battery quality processing capability. For, for them. Um, what we've also been working on quite a lot in the last uh, 12 to 18 months is also um, our lithium extraction technology. So working with brine projects in particular uh, to extract the lithium directly uh, from the resource. And we've been working with a project, uh, NRG Metals in particular in Argentina on that front. I probably hear about DLE three or four times a week. There's, there's a lot of players. I firmly believe that it will happen at some point. Knowing when it'll be commercialized is even more challenging now with the with the current slowdown we've had in expansions. But that goes back for me to the question of we see the Atacama struggle with the percent of battery quality material that they produce and their expansions. And if we took a step back two years ago, people were expecting the million tons in 2025, but 400,000 of them to be from the Atacama. And whether the million tons happens in 2025 or 2026, I, I'm not sure, but it ultimately will happen. But there is less material clearly going to come from the Atacama. I've heard more about the, the drama with uh, various uh, the indigenous people, the water issues, and so on and so forth. So my question here is reprocessing capacity is going to be more and more important in my mind. And how do you see that playing out? Do you see it becoming localized? Do you see China as becoming the hub for that? Because right now I'd say 85% of reprocessing capacity is inside China. And so how do you, how do you see that playing out and how do you see your role in that? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question, especially in light of what's been happening with COVID and you know everyone's attention on establishing more localized uh, supply chains. So I think China is going to continue to be a very important area for reprocessing and conversion because the market itself is very big and it's great for you know, for, the, for the Asia region. But I think there you know eventually needs to be uh, conversion capability uh, outside China, so near the end user markets in Europe or potentially North America, but obviously Europe being uh, uh, having more, I would say, uh, policy support in the near term is probably where the, where the focus is. And I think from Kempis' perspective, we are very open to working as a technology partner to support projects producing battery quality material in those uh, outside China locations. 
Yeah, in terms of those kind of relationships, I mean, given if you look at the European build-out, you've got a mix of Asian players and, and Umicor that's Europe-based, but really it's been in the, in the battery materials market since the beginning, so it's, they're kind of a hybrid. But do you see your expertise being brought in by the projects or by the existing relationships you may have already and them just saying, well here's a solution because it's uh i'm talking to some of the, the people that are, are trying to do projects now in, in europe and this is a new group of people and these are people that haven't done it before and in some cases they're dealing with battery companies that have been in the business for a long time so it's it's an interesting dance about who's gonna bring what to bear on these yeah no that, that's right i think um what probably what what uh Ken has as our value add is that we've been in the industry for for a very long time our product quality is recognized and approved by most of the major uh, battery and, and cathode producers uh, and we're you know willing to to provide our processing expertise so kind of uh, bringing that all together um, is i think where we see our, our value add do you see Kempfis making any of those investments yourself or do you see outside of china mostly being a partnership model I think for us, outside of China, would mostly be a partnership model at this stage. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. We would like to thank our sponsor, Zolandes, who prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Recently, a junior lithium explorer in Argentina was able to save up to 20% in their exploration costs through the use of Zolandes Technology Services. To learn more, visit Zelandes.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. Given so much of your life has been lived in Western Australia, I will, I will speak to you as an expert on Western Australia. And we've seen the Lithium Valley, the desire to fully functioning ecosystem in WA, but really the the execution's been been good on the, the mining side up to spodumene concentrate. Do you see Australia and WA in particular as becoming a major center for lithium chemicals production, or do you think it will be limited even five or ten years from now? Yeah, so I think Australia is historically a country with really deep mining experience. So I think the fact that you know we saw the spodumene projects coming online you know, fairly smoothly in quick time is is not surprising. But Australia really has quite limited chemical processing and you know refining uh, industries. So you know even within within China, starting up a battery quality conversion plant is difficult. You know. It, despite China having quite a deep pool of uh, person, like sort of staffing and, and knowledge. So I think the, the difficulty that some of the other projects in Australia that, that are experiencing is probably not unexpected, given that there's not much experience in Australia to draw from. I think if the project owners have exist, existing experience, successful experience over, you know, in, other, in other projects, they should be able to apply that in the Australia project. Um, so I think probably over time, you know, period of trial and error, things will work themselves out for the projects in Australia. But as we know, given the current uh, market situation, a lot of the expansion plans have been delayed or you know put on hold. And I think given the current valuations of potential existing facilities that's already been built elsewhere, potentially maybe these these 
unconstructed projects in Australia will be delayed even further. So that's kind of my, my feeling. You know, it's interesting that you have two players that own green bushes, obviously have lithium processing capability. And the fact that they've had a tough go so far in WA brings up questions, but it seems like logically you would think that uh, with time that would, would write itself. I guess the other question I have is because the capital is so much higher to build a chemicals project in Australia versus China, versus Sichuan or Jiangxi or any of the places that China has capacity. After the two projects or three projects are built out and you have had some level of regionalization, will it make sense from a capital perspective for companies to keep putting money into WA? I mean, and, and I don't have an answer on that. I just, I just know that you know, Gangfin said it pretty clearly that their capital to build in Jiangxi is the, the same as WA, except for theirs is an RMB and the same numbers in Aussie dollars. So, no, I, I agree with you. I think that, that's kind of my thinking as well. If, if, especially under the current climate conditions where these projects have now been put on hold and the capital intensity is so high, potentially it's more attractive to invest elsewhere. Um, and in particular, I think, you know, having the conversion capability in Australia was also a strategy to have you know ex-China uh, hydroxide or available to the to the customers but if now the if now with the you know increased focus on localization then perhaps you want the conversion to happen in Europe somewhere closer to where the future cathode requirements are so those are potentially all factors they may impact uh, the development of a localized Australian uh, conversion market. Let me, let me ask you a question about recycling. Do you think you will be part of the technology involved in the recycling build out that ultimately has to happen? Because if you can process materials and get the right purity, I mean, one of the issues that recycling's had thus far is that, especially with lithium, lithium is a lower, lower value of the elements, but it also tends not to be a battery quality material that results from the recycling process. Do you see opportunities there? Have you looked at that? Yes. So that's definitely an area that we're uh, interested in and we've started working on that already. So kind of combining what we were doing in lithium extraction and our you know high purity processing experience, that, uh, that can be applied to the recycled lithium streams that tend to be high impurity lithium streams. Um, so yeah, that's definitely an area that we're, uh, we're looking at. And are you, in your mind, five years from now, a lithium producer or a technology company enabling lithium? It's probably a hybrid <laughs> of the two. So I think a lot of the um, high purity, you know, niche products, we probably uh, retain that as an in-house capability. But increasingly, where we want to build uh, strong partnerships with, you know, industry participants to deliver the, the more uh, high volume materials that are required uh, for, for battery applications. And when we, we talked uh, last year and you were asked what excites you the most about the industry and you said it was the ability to bring a step change in processing cost. You've continued to, to work with the, the various areas we've talked about. Do you see that happening in the next five years that some of the marginal brine projects will be by a step change 
in the process because we have a very bifurcated cost curve right now. And to get to a million tons and then the second million tons, it's going to require doing something differently than we do today. Yeah, so exactly. I think the, the new technologies being developed on the extraction side uh, are really exciting. And then combined with the uh, the new processes that I know every company is also is working on, but our, our in-house uh, proprietary process in particular, uh, we're quite excited about is, is different from everybody else's traditional process. And I think, you know, from our perspective, developing new processes and uh, commercializing them, we have to look at also the sustainability of these processes. So I think those are all factors that, that I think Chemphys is very focused on in terms of our next step development. There's been a, a couple of announcements in the past uh, four or five months about uh, improvements in LFP technology. And, you know, we got the BYD blade and the CATL sell the pack and the announcement that Tesla will use LFP and at least some of the Model 3. That kind of changed from the thinking when we talked just 14 months ago about, you know, high nickel being the, the future. How does that change your focus? Because it really, in my mind, makes... Shanghai more significant, lithium carbonate more significant, and, and Brian in general more significant. So what are your thoughts on the potential of LFP being able to go at least into the middle market of EVs rather than just buses in the low end in, in, of cars and scooters? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think um, in China in particular, there's definitely going to be a, you know increased demand for this low to medium uh, end consumer vehicles that, that could be LFP chemistries. But I think the premium car market in China is actually still quite a significant market. So I think the premium uh, part of the market will continue to have uh, high nickel NCM and NCA chemistries. So there'll still be a significant increase in hydroxide demand from China. So I think we, uh, overall, it probably hasn't changed our view that hydroxide will continue to be the higher gross material, especially with hydroxide being the, the, the dominant one in, in Europe. Uh, but definitely, I think our assumptions around the proportion of the market that LFP has is probably increasing China than previously. I firmly believe that despite LFP's you know, rebirth, if you want to phrase it that way, yeah, high nickel is definitely going to have its, have its day. I guess the question becomes, though, even if you look at a market like Europe for EVs, most people's commutes aren't like they are in, in Australia or North America. And the current mindset, you know, everything I read is like, well, Europe's going to be all high nickel because it's all going to be like luxury cars. Well, there's a there's a pretty big middle class in here. And and do you see if you if you go out five or, or ten years that there is a market for the three hundred kilometer to four hundred kilometer commuting EV that uses a, a less expensive battery technology or because you are in this market it's good to get your opinion and and i just i don't see europe as being everybody driving a high-end 100 kilowatt hour battery with uh 811 or nca i agree with you on, on that um and i think also with you know within lithium-ion phosphate chemistries there's different uh, qualities as well, and, and that what they require in terms of the carbonate grade is, is different. So it's not it's not like we're saying because there's going to be uh, increased LFP, then all of that that sort of lower quality uh, or technical grade stuff can be used. There are still distinctions. I think with if it, if it's going to be used in a car with longer range, it still needs to have a, a higher 
uh, quality raw material for that. Yeah, I mean, when we did the pod, second podcast with Yuan Gao, and, and that was his, his comment is that, and uh, in, in also Nano One, is that if you want a, a Tesla quality LFP, there really isn't a waiver on the spec. Yes, LFP is a little more forgiving in raw material, but it's, it's because of that range of quality you're talking about. Now, if you want to get into the, to the, mid, the mid market, you're, you're probably still going to have to have the, the, the same type of quality. And I think that was probably part of the narrative on LFP that came out of comments that Qinghai's material was being used in LFP. And in many cases, it was cleaned up Qinghai material being used in LFP, which is, is a distinction that seemed to be lost on the narrative. But I see that quality is going to matter going forward, no matter what. And, and that's why you seem to be very well positioned, because you're a quality enabler. Let me ask you one more question about Qinghai. Where do you think they go from a, a capacity standpoint? They've been going to make 50,000 tons since the late 90s. When I first went there in 2002, they were going to be making 50,000 tons next year and then next year. And, you know, now it, it doesn't seem impossible. What do you see based on deploying improved processing that the, the limits of, of Qinghai? So at the moment, most of the, the, the new expansions in Qinghai are still producing, I would say, sort of a technical or industrial grade product. Of course, you know, I think they're doing a lot of work to try and improve the grade to a one-step battery quality, but that's been going on, like you said, for nigh on a decade. And so our feeling is that the expansion uh, capacity out of Qinghai will continue to be probably predominantly this industrial technical grade product. Do you have any thoughts on the amount of reprocessing capacity that currently exists? in China. We do. We have a spreadsheet. But I <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not going to ask you to reveal your spreadsheet number. <laughs> I honestly believe within five years, there's going to have to be six figures of reprocessing operating. And that's the other challenge from my perspective is that the, the biggest barrier right now to the million tons is that you know everybody likes to talk about the current oversupply but we're at a at a less than 400,000 tons and a very poor ratio of battery quality to industrial quality if almost all your growth is in battery then i think if you count up green bushes Pilbara, Altura, Mount Marion, Mount Catlin, Alita, and Wojina, you still only get to the first million tons. So it seems like if you need, let's just say 90% to be battery quality in 2025, then there's going to have to be a lot of capital deployed to reprocess material. You see that happening on a timely basis? It's quicker to build a facility like that than it is a, a full-blown project. But how do you see that playing out? Yeah, in, in terms of sort of that market um, balance dynamic, I, you know, I think we're obviously now in a situation of oversupply, um, even for battery grade, uh, battery quality material. Uh, but I think in the next, uh, we're, we're sort of looking at 2023, 2024, yeah, probably 2023 as the, the year where things might 
sort of tip into a shortage scenario. So that's not not that far away. And if people uh, have delayed their expansions and you know both in the mine and also for conversions uh, at this stage, it's not going to things aren't going to to ramp up quick enough. I think to meet the demand in when the when the market becomes uh, short. So unfortunately, I think we're going to see another round of price uh, quite price volatility in the upside when that happens. Well, thank you for that, because that's that's what I've been saying for, for a long time. I I actually think it'll happen in 2022 with the struggles the Atacama is having, with the delays in uh, Argentina projects. You really only have in Argentina uh, Kochari as additional capacity in the next three years. Because, uh, I mean, live events stopped everything. Galaxies taking it step by step, let's say. If the Atacama only can get to, say, 200,000 by 2025, that's a lot of hard rock processing that has to happen. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I literally believe if you have a, a reasonable EV penetration growth, you're going to see the spot price go back into the 20. And it might be worse than 2016 because, well, it, you know, the, when it happened before, EV penetration was less than one and a half. And that's that's what I think people miss is that this is a market that the party's just getting started. The, the ability to bring lithium on quickly doesn't exist yet. <laughs> so anyway, that's a little bit of an editorial comment, I guess. But uh, I'm going to leave it there. We asked you more rapid fire questions last time than any other guest. So I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy, but I do want to ask you in thinking about what's happened in the last, I guess, five months, six months in the world, what's one lesson that you've learned from the, the COVID experience? I think, you know, out of everything, having your health, uh, family and friends is the most important thing. I think that's got to be the takeaway for me. Okay. Good answer. You know, your all your answers last time were good. I listened to that podcast again yesterday just to prepare for this one. You did very well. So, Allison Dye, thank you very much for joining us again. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. Thank you to our sponsor, Zalandez. And I'll leave you with the thought. Don't let your memories exceed your dreams. Good night and good luck.